Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Osband, our Daf of the Day, Masachat Sukkah, Daf Yudalad, page 14. Uh, before we get underway with page 14, I just want to follow up on the comment, a couple of comments about the hyssop that we talked about yesterday. Um, Leanne Shamash was kind enough to comment on our Facebook share of the episode, or or somewhere there around there, with an article about the hyssop. Right, and this is exactly where the complications of what is the azov and what is the hyssop, right? Because the translation kind of gets in the way. It seems from a friend who also listens, thank you, Lani, um, that there are several different kinds of plants that are called hyssop, one of which is indeed the purple flowers in the article that Leanne posted on Facebook on Talking Talmud, and the other, or another, is the azov, which is more commonly known or used in za'atar, the spice. So the flowers are different and the plant is different, but the name in English is unfortunately the same. So that's it. Meaning the point is just that there's a point of confusion or potential confusion with the fact that we're dealing in translation. But if you look back at the original and you look at for Azov, that's that's the plant that, that it's talking about. So uh, thank you for clarifying that. Um, it's always interesting to see how there are, names or translations that get circulated, but yet the real biblical meaning of them is actually, you know, quite different. Uh, I'm going to continue on with the top of the stop with a discussion that we started yesterday, which was to say the cases is that somebody harvests some grain or the straw really from the grain and decides that they no longer want to use it for uh, grain anymore for the purpose of eating it, but rather decides that they would like to, um, uh, to, uh, you know, to use it for schach, basically. And they draw an inter- interesting parallel here from a Mishnah with Kalim. And it reads as follows. I'm actually starting from the bottom of Yud Gimel Amidabad. Bahatna, we learned in a Mishnah. Kola Kalim, Yordin Liyadei Tumba So all vessels, right? Literally what this means is descend or go down into, their, into a state of Tuma, into ritual impurity, just by machshava. So what this means is, is that normally an unfinished kli cannot become tame, right? Basically, it, it, it has to be finished, right? You have to finish the kli for it to be a status of a kli. But let's say the, the, the skilled craftsman who's making that kli decides he's going to leave it for now in its unfinished state. He's not going to finish the kli up, but intends that later on he will. It actually does now have the status of a full kli, and it can become ritually impure. And so that's what it means. Even though it's not finished yet, it hasn't been by action made into a completed vessel by machshava, by thought it has been. And so it can be makabal tumah. And it cannot sort of ascend out of its state of ritual impurity, except by an actual action, by a masa, not by machshava, right? So just by the craftsman deciding that he's, you know, he's going to complete, right? If he decides, oh, and now I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to complete this unfinished vessel, right? It doesn't change its status, right? It will only lose its status as a, as a clee, right? It loses it when he takes action to actually bother to complete it. So if you had this unfinished clee and then the craftsman says, you know what, I'm going to, now I'm going to go ahead and finish it, right? Before he had no intention to finish it, it actually can't become a cleat till he actually has machshava, sorry, till he actually has 
Masa until he takes actual action. And then the Mishnah goes on to say, Masa Masa So action can negate a status that's created by action or by thought, right? Right? But thought cannot negate a status created by, by action or by thought. So how does this apply basically to our case? The way it would apply to our case is once the straw of the right of the grain, which was harvested for food, it's automatically considered a handle, right? Because you need that straw to keep the grain where it is. It becomes a cleave, right? So it is, sorry, so it's, it's, it's sort of like it, it becomes a handle, becomes susceptible to tuma. But once the person decides, you know what? I'm not going to use it for food. I'm going to use it for the roof. It, that by itself cannot negate it. And so then the Gemara sort of basically goes on in a little bit more detail than I'm going to actually read, right? But basically quoting now another Mishnah of the Hatanan, Kol Yedoda Ochlin Shebisasan Bagorin Tehorot, right? That all handles of food that one does Bisasin to, right? And so the question is, what is that action, right? Those handles, those Yadot actually stay ritually pure once you do this action of bisasan to them, right? Because that action indicates that you don't actually have use for the adot anymore. They're not significant and therefore they no longer become, uh, they're not something that could be macabre tuna anymore. And then the Gemara goes on to basically figure out what is bisasin. And it, uh, it has two different opinions of what it could be. It's either igudan, right? Which means you unbinded them in some ways. So even though you didn't necessarily do an action to the sheave itself, but you unbound the sheaves of grain, right? Which shows that you didn't really need them anymore um, or you didn't want them as they were, right? The, the stalks that hold in the straw that's holding it together was important. Or it could mean that he trampled them, right? So that you actually sort of like did something to the yado, to the handles themselves. So, uh, you know, the machlokas itself is a little bit confusing how it goes back and forth. But I think the concept here that basically what the Gemara comes to is that it's not as simple as just to say, oh, I changed my mind. I harvested some grain and now I want to use it as sukkah, right? As chach. But rather, there is an action that actually has to take place with it. Either it's an unbinding, either it's a trampling, but you actually have to show that the adot don't actually mean anything for you anymore. And then finally, just one other thing I want to point out. The Gemara here before the Mishnah ends on this really bizarre note, right? So it's having this whole discussion about um, the straw and that you need the straw in order to turn grain over, right? It, it quotes his opinion according to Rabbi Yochanan um, and, and according to Rachel Lucky should go through this whole thing, but that it eventually ends on that even after grain is trampled, it could be that you still could use the straw because you would use the straw to sort of turn it over, right? You use take it with a pitchfork. And then the Gemara ends with this very weird agarita that sort of comes out of nowhere. Why do we compare the tefillot of tzaddikim to a pitchfork, to an eter? Right? Because it teaches us that, and it's basing this on a pasuk in uh, in Bereshit, 
chapter 25, verse 21, where it says, Yitzchak, right, he prays. That's what we usually say it is. He prays, but it's the same shorash as the pitchfork that Rivka should become pregnant because she was barren. So just as the pitchfork sort of turns the straw over, right, from place to place, right, on the threshing floor, Right, so too, this pitchfork will also turn over the thoughts of God. In other words, it literally turns it over, going from an attribute of cruelty to a midah mercy, and that God will change and basically accept those prayers. So my point here in reading this is I think this concept of needing a masa is very interesting, right? That ultimately we do need a masa to make this chach okay to be used. And just to point out this really kind of, they stick in this agarata here, which I understand why, but it still seems to sort of come uh, a little bit out of, out of nowhere. And I thought what was interesting here is that here we're talking about, you know, a physical thing, a pitchfork, which physically turns things over, right? Where we're talking about sort of comparing it to machshava, right? That in a way, God turns God's thoughts over, I guess, in a way. But I guess also those are actions, right? Like whether or not God's actions or what happens in the world will be one of cruelty, of achsariyut, or if it will be one of rachmiyut, or if it will be one of rachmiyut. So I, I, I'm not sure I fully fleshed this out, but I was playing along a little bit with this idea of like the pitchfork and the tefillot, because I think we think of tefillot or changing God's might as being just machshava, but I think comparing it to the pitchfork is something that's actually masa. So I think there's something a little bit deeper that's going on here on this stuff. I think there's something valuable about taking that step back to think about, you know, the essence of schach and what makes it schach, right? If we're talking about intent and we're talking about the action that we take and both are necessary, then even even before the Agatha, I think, the phenomenon of like this requirement I think, you know, we've been, I would say we're enough into Masachat Sukkot at this time to say, okay, here we're, we're seeing the themes, we're seeing the issues that become relevant to the halachot of, of what does it mean to put schach on your sukkah and have it count. I, I would agree with that. And I, you know, it, it's interesting to see how it plays the Mishnah here. Um, so we have a new Mishnah which brings up like a totally different case about um, uh, about schach. And here we're talking about what if somebody takes boards and puts these boards um, on top of uh, the schach itself, okay? And they don't, right? So according to Rabbi Yehuda, you can put boards on top of it, right? As schach. Right, as schach, basically. Sorry, I said on top of the schach. You can use boards as schach. Right. And the point here is that these boards would normally be used. That's what you could normally roof a house with. But Rabbi Yehuda is saying you can use it. But Rabbi Meir, oh, so Rabbi Meir says you're not allowed to use them. Now we have a case where you're taking this board, right? And the board is as wide as four tzfachim. And you put that on top of the sukkah. The question is, is that sukkah still kosher? Or do we consider it that it's almost like too much of a permanent roof and it would not be okay? So the Tanakama here says, no, it is kosher. 
But as long as somebody wouldn't actually sleep underneath that particular part. Now, I use the word Tanakama because they don't really say, the Mishnah does not say whose opinion this is. The Gemara, which, Anne, I know you're going to get into, uh, is going to spend a little bit of time trying to tease out exactly what this case is. And, you know, I actually would say here, this is a Mishnah where you do need the Gemara's commentary. Sometimes you read Mishnahs where the Mishnah actually seems very simple and it's understandable. And then you get to the commentary and the Gemara, you're like, wow, it really elevated it in a way but I still could have understood the Mishnah just by itself. I don't feel that way about this particular Mishnah. I actually think this Mishnah is fairly vague and just doing a quick read of it, I don't really understand what it's talking about. And I think that's reflected in the Gemara, which Anne, you'll get to, which really goes through a few permeations of what could this Mishnah actually be talking about. This is a very vague Mishnah. I think we see that in the Gemara that it really sort of, struggles with understanding what is the point of the mission what's the actual case here okay um i don't think that we're going to have time to look into all of the permutations here what i'd like to do is look at how the machloket in the mishnah is then developed in the machloket in the gemara which i'll explain in one minute one minute i just want to say that the premise here of course and i'm i'm sure everybody takes this as a given the mishnah certainly certainly takes it as a given the question about the boards is because boards are made, these boards anyway, are made of wood and wood is from trees and trees grow from the earth. So therefore they are gidule karka, they grow from the earth and therefore theoretically anyway, they should be able to be schach without any discussion. Except for, as you said, Yardina, you know, boards, beams, certainly of a certain width are generally considered roofing for a permanent dwelling as opposed to a temporary dwelling. And that's where the, I think that's where the question kicks in. Right, so the claim that you could use boards, that's from the Mishnah, um, in the name of Rabbi Yehuda, with the disputant here of Rabbi Meir, who says, no, you can't use them. The Gemara then comes and has a machloket from Rav and Shmuel on the Mishnah. And then the question is, that they're debating, is what are Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Meir actually debating? So it's a debate about what the debate is. Amar Rav, machloket b'nisarin shiyesh b'hen arba'ah. Divrei Rebbe Meir, eat like Zera Tikra, Rebbe Yehuda, late like Zera Tikra. So Rav's opinion is that the dispute between Rebbe Meir and Rebbe Yehuda is about whether, when you have boards that are four tzvachim wide, which keep in mind is reasonably wide as far as a beam goes, right? So, but that's also apparently some kind of standard size for boards, right? If you're going to put it in a house. So then Rebbe Meir says that there's a decree the decree is gzeret tikra, that you can't, <coughs> excuse me, things that would otherwise be a tikra, that could be a roof, meaning for a house, is not going to be appropriate for a sukkah, as opposed to the opinion here of Rabbi Huda, late leg gzeret tikra, that it's just not applied here, that Rabbi, Rabbi Huda says that this is not relevant. Um, okay, why? Well, the main concern here seems to be, and your Dana, you touched on this because the Mishnah touches on it, right, that the that the beam itself is wide enough for its fucking wide. Again, they, a person could sleep on it, sleep under it rather, not on it. It's still up there as as ceiling, as roofing. Um, you could sleep under it, and then you're not under the stars at all. That schach is so dense, right? It's a solid beam that that would not be um, that would not be permitted. It would be as if you're sleeping under a ceiling as opposed to under schach of a sukkah.
Uh, Rabbi Yehuda doesn't is not concerned about this, however. Um, he says, oh, I'm sorry. Aval ben she'ein behen arba'a, so then, according to Rav, Rav on these two, if you have if your beams are less than four tefachim wide to begin with, then everybody would agree that you can use beams to be part of your schach or to be your schach. Shmuel Amar, so now because again we've got a machlok at Rav and Shmuel. Shmuel Amar b'she'ein b'hen arba arba'a machloket, aval yesh b'hen arba'a divrehekol psula. So Shmuel's position is. That their dispute is about beams that are narrower than four tzvachim wide, but and that if you have four tzvachim wide, both Rebbe Meir and Rebbe Huda would agree that that is too wide. It counts more as gzeratikra. It counts as ceiling and not as schach. Um, so the machloket between Rav and Shmuel about what the machloket is boils down to how you know the question of how wide these beams might be and what which direction they're going to take them. Right, either to the um, everybody agrees that less than that is is permitted, or everybody agrees that that degree that that measure for its vachim and more would be prohibited. Um, now the Gemara asks, right? According to the opinion, according to the opinion of Shmuel, ein b'hen arba'a the afilu pachot mishlosha ha kanim ba'al maninu. So what happens if you have? They're not for vachim wide. Right, but they're even less than three tefachim wide. So then, isn't that kanim ba'alma? Meaning, aren't they just reeds? Right? Would the would Rebbe Mayer prohibit them even in that case? Even according to the opinion where he says that he's prohibiting um, the less than four tefachim wide to begin with. But how how narrow? You know, how wide? What's his minimum before he will say, um, okay, less than that, you you're okay. You, it counts as chach. Amar of Papa, Hachika Amar. So now we have yet another layer coming on top of explaining Shmuel. Hachika Amar, Yesh Pahen Arbaa, Divre Hakol Psula, Pachol Mishlosha, Divre Hakol Kshira. According to Rav Papa, the range of the Machloket is really between three Tvachim and four Tvachim. Because less than three Tvachim, everybody says that's fine, that's Schach. Obviously, Schach. And four and up, everybody agrees. Oh, that is clearly tikra. That is clearly ceiling. But so the machloket then is, you know, on this, you know, from three point one to, to, I guess what three point nine nine, you know, obviously those numbers are inaccurate. Um, that's where the machloket is, where whether it is acceptable or not acceptable, or whether it be kosher or puzzle. Let me use the terms correctly. My tama, what's the rationale? Kanim ba'alma ninhu. When it's smaller than three tzvachim, it's just like a reed, like just a general reed. Don't worry about it. He plige mishloshad arba marsavar kevin delitne shiur makom lo gazrina. No marsavar kevin denafkalu mitorat lavud gazrina. So now we have yet another explanation about the machloket of Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Meir, specifically that when we're talking about that three to four, that zone between three and four. Rabbi Huda holds that they're not that measure of three to four is not significant, so therefore there'd be no decree prohibiting them because they're just not. It's still not enough to count as something that is wide enough to be a chikrat, to be a ceiling. And then Rabbi Meir, the Gemara should be careful. The Gemara here just says Marsavar, Marsavar, but we can track it back to the Mishnah. I know who says what. <coughs> Excuse me. So Rabbi Meir says that. 
remember that status of lovehood, right? The the idea of um of I don't know what material coming together, even when there's a gap there, right? It's considered joined. And then if you have less than three tzvachim together with less than three, three tzvachim, you'll end up, you know, with a situation of joined roofing. And then potentially you can end up in the zone of that decree of Gezerah uh, Tikra, right? That's where it says, Mitorat Lavud Gazrina. That's exactly when they made the dec- the decree. Okay, the Gemara goes on from here and looks into different permutations of exactly these questions of the boards. But the part that I find to be really interesting here is the premise, right? The premise that you could have wood beams that are really used for a housing, for permanent housing, and treat them as schach, even though you cannot see through them to the sky, and they only cast shade and there's no sunlight coming through, because they argue Dule Karka, because they grow from the earth, and therefore that's enough to open up the discussion of how what percentage of the sukkah itself is covered, as opposed to what if you're sitting right under it and it's solid. Sit right under it is not a problem. Um, uh, I'm not sure if that's really true, halachically speaking, but at least at this stage of the Gemara's development of it, the, the issue is, you know, until you get past a certain width, you don't have to worry that it's too wide to be considered schach. It doesn't become roof. I know we're using the term roofing for schach as a translation, but I would say, you know, ceiling or roof in a permanent house until four tzvachim and, and more, or in the opinion of Rebbe Meir, perhaps from three tzvachim to four as well. Well, I now looking at this Mishnah and the previous Mishnah, um, I think we're really sort of dealing with sort of two extremes, I guess is the way that I would say it, right? One is a case of, you know, you take something that you harvested, sort of like the barest, most unfinished, right? This whole case with the grain and the straw. And can you use that for schach? And now we have, right, because it's still gedule karka. And now we have like sort of almost the flip of it, which is a gedule karka, but it's very, it's a real finished product. And so I think it's really just looking at two, you know, extremes in the cake of, in the case of schach, right? That we can have something that's really a gazuli karka that has a different purpose. Can we repurpose it for schach? What form does that have to be in? Does it still contain some of the properties for its real intended purpose, right? Meaning grain is really usually there to eat, not to be made for schach. And then we have this other extreme Mishnah, which is, a gedule karka that was totally repurposed for its real intended, you know, purpose, which was a board for a house or building or something like that. Can we still use that? And I think the theme overall here is the emphasis on that the gedule karka piece is a very, very important piece to it. I think so. And I think that this is where, you know, your dinner, when we talk about boundary pushing halacha or mishnayot or discussion, I would say, I wouldn't call this boundary pushing as much as boundary establishing, right? What is that, you know, the the least permanent kind of tzach that we could think of, you know, which would be like the leavings of the harvest? And what's the most permanent tzach that would still be considered tzach? And I think that it's, you know, everything in between is, I would say, the bulk of what people actually use. And I agree with you. I think it's really boundary establishing because I actually think this was probably very practical. You know, they didn't have like the sukkah depot that made your bamboo mat that you bought and stored in your garage every year. Probably people had to scramble for schach every year. So you had some people who had access to their harvest. 
other people who maybe had other supplies or things laying around that they wanted to use for their circle. And can you go to the lumber yard, you know, so to speak? Right. And then one other thing I just wanted to point out before we close the staff off is that case about the sukkah in, you know, a time where there was danger, the time of Sakana. Um, and I guess my bigger question was, was like, I, you know, if we were, if you were really told that you couldn't build a sukkah, you know, that's not like learning Torah or not being allowed to do bris milah. It's a sukkah. So we don't have time to get into it because I think we're almost about done with today's episode. But I just thought that case itself, it was interesting. They didn't get into all thing about whether or not anyone's life should have been risked for building that kind of sukkah. I, I think I'm hoping that we'll come back to it because I think it's worthy of our discussion. Um, I think today we had to kind of lay this foundation with, you know, the essence of the mission and the material from that continued from yesterday. But hopefully we'll come back to this danger question. That's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 